You guys are sweet. Good morning. Okay, Second John chapter 1. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tara. Everybody grab your seats. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. It's fall time here in San Diego as we get out of summer. Kids are coming back. Freshmen, I'd love to welcome you guys here to Neighbors Church. You know, there's uh, pillars of this community when we planted this church that were freshmen, and they've been with us the whole way, and now they've prayed, and they're actually staying here in the city, so this may become your church uh, for the rest of your life. <laughs> and uh, our prayer really, truly is to be a five-generation church. We're not working off of a five-year strategy. We're working off of a five-generation strategy, and so we are praying that the people of God would once again recognize how desperately this ultra-expensive city needs Jesus. So we all know how much it costs to live here, but I'd love to invite you kids to start praying right now. Maybe this could be your home, and maybe uh, we could be raising your grandkids together. That's my dream. Uh, I'm getting older. I'm emotional about stuff all the time lately. (laughs) The Lord is doing something very profound. So my name is Dan. My wife, Alexis, was up here giving announcements. It really is an honor to be a teacher and one of the lead pastors of this church. And so if you would, we are wrapping up our series, uh, the summer series, Becoming a Community of Love. And then this fall, we're going to settle in. Next week, I'll really lay out the map for the fall. And I cannot wait for 2024. But this fall, we're going to emphasize prayer. We're going to be studying the Our Father prayer, the most famous prayer of Jesus Christ. We're going to be doing a prayer module with Practicing the Way. It's John Mark Comer and the crew on Wednesday nights. We're going to join up with Communion Church and partner with them, maybe even do a joint worship gathering, possibly at the end of November. We're doing our first ever 20 24-hour prayer room, which is going to be absolutely amazing. And so next week, I'll lay out where we've been for those of you that are new. We've been tracing through this year rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing, and we're going to cap it off with prayer. And then in 2024, I'm just going to slip a little hint. We're going to spend next summer in the Minor Prophets. How many of you have ever read Obadiah, just by a raise of hands? Oh, a few of you. Well done. Wow. Bible scholars, all of you. Good. Well, we're going to spend a whole summer next summer in the Minor Prophets. So legit Bible people. That's what we want to be. 
Would you join me in just kind of breathing into your body and let's get present to the teaching of the text. Lord, we have uh, spent the morning singing praise to you. I've almost lost my voice trying to give you praise with everything that I am, everything. My whole heart, mind, soul, and body now I offer to you as a living sacrifice. May this beautiful bride of Christ, this church, this local expression, may she be presented to you pure and blameless. And may we this day be given strength to comprehend with all the saints what are the riches of your incomparable and unknowable love. Fill us with your fullness this morning, O God, not to you who are able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine. Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, in this generation, a thousand generations from now, and all generations ever to come, world without end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start here. When I say the word hospitality, what comes to your mind? Just let the word conjure images thoughts, food, food comes to mind. What else? Let's do this. Let's do this. Dialogical. What comes to mind when I say hospitality? Go ahead. Shout something. What? Big table. Serving. My mom. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, that's good. When, when I say hospitality, a couple things come to my mind. First of all, um, I get barred from the couch because I'll mess up the pillows. Uh, I get barred from the kitchen because I'll mess up the little charcuterie plate. Uh, whenever I say hospitality, I sort of have like a PTSD because I know I'm going to have to go clean the bathroom about 800 times over. The other thing that comes to my mind in modern forms of hospitality, how many of you are familiar with Kinfolk Magazine? Just by a show of hands, Kinfolk Magazine. Just a few of you. Okay, so Kinfolk is a classic millennial sort of magazine that's about lifestyle. And so whenever I think of hospitality, I think of Kinfolk Magazine covers It's usually beautiful models all smiling brightly at each other. They're all surrounding this table. Their clothing is all, you know, ethically sourced. They've got every sort of diet on the table in front of them. You know, they've got gluten-free, dairy-free, keto, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, paleo. paleo. They have all the options there. And, you know, the decorum is always minimal, but pronounced just enough that you notice what's been placed there. The colors are white and usually soft beige and soft pinks, splashes of subtle gray so as not to overwhelm the sensitivities. Whenever I think about hospitality in the modern West, that's us, modern urbanites, I I actually think that for us, hospitality conjures scenes of like aesthetic perfection. We're putting forward an image and idealistic social interaction. The models are always smiling. You never see the weird, awkward person that's part of the community. (laughs) They're always just perfect. They're always smiling at each other. The jokes are always hilarious. The the conversation just always flows. This is what I envision. And if I was going to be a little bit cynical, which I can tend to be sometimes, and honest, hospitality in this cultural moment, at least the context in which I was raised, it feels sometimes more like a competition than companionship. It looks and feels like who can look the best, who can have the best spread, and who can curate the most envy uh, on Instagram. Now, for upward, mobile, performance-driven Americans like us, hospitality sometimes becomes more about trying to impress, trying to network, trying to climb the social hierarchy, instead of what hospitality has always been throughout human history, which is genuine, humble, healing community. Now, let me contrast that with the ancients, because we're reading an ancient document here. In 2 John, for the ancients, for John the Apostle and for his community spread throughout Asia Minor, hospitality was a matter of life and death, much more than aesthetic perfection and idealistic social interaction. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to be in Israel for about three or four weeks, three weeks, 
And this was not your kind of quintessential bougie American air-conditioned bus tour of Israel. I was out there with a bunch of college kids, and we got to see into the guts of Israel. It was an intense experience. It was absolutely amazing. And for a segment of our time, we actually rode camels deep into the Judean desert. And I was able to camp with the Bedouins out there in their tents. And the Bedouins still live much like they lived in the days of Jesus. And the Bedouins, for us, bent over backwards to offer us hospitality. They offered us their bedding, their camels, their coffee, which was just a form of like liquid cocaine in a little cup. It was so intense. And then at night, each of them, and this was no joke, at night, all of the host tent people would go through and they would carefully search all of our beds for camel spiders. After the teaching, not right now, Google camel spiders, you won't sleep for a week. They were looking for these things in our beds and I saw them in real life. So one of our Bedouin hosts explained that in their context, to not offer hospitality to a stranger was to sentence that stranger to death. Without the covering and the welcoming of a community's tents and food and water in the deep deserts of Judea, without those protective actions and those provisional actions, a stranger would be sentenced to die in the elements. And so for the Bedouins, for the people of John's day, hospitality was literally life-saving. And for the Bedouins and for the people of John's day, for thousands of years, they all abided by this unwritten and unbreakable commitment and covenant to each other. If a community denied hospitality to someone when they needed it, then they would be cast aside when they needed it most, and vice versa. To offer hospitality to a stranger would then, by default, obligate that stranger's community to covenantally meet you in your time of need. It was literally Jesus's rule of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you in the midst of sand and camel spiders. So as we read 2 John today and 3 John next week, these are the final two books that we're looking at in this summer series, A Community of Love, Becoming a Community of Love. We need to understand that both of these final books from St. John, they were addressing issues of hospitality, but not hospitality in the sense of aesthetic perfection or social interaction. Hospitality in the sense of life and death, in the sense of eternal life and death. For John, hospitality was a means of either hindering and helping the kingdom of Jesus Christ move forward in the world, or hospitality was a means of hindering the movement of the kingdom of God through us in our homes and hearts into the world. Who was welcome around our tables and in our homes and in our hearts, and who we did not welcome around our tables, in our homes and in our hearts. These decisions would either help the gospel multiply throughout Asia Minor or diminish its ability to multiply through Asia Minor. And on unto this day, 2,000 years later, John was exhorting his communities. And this is going to be, as you'll discover if you make Neighbors Your Church Home and you sit through a number of these teachings over the next year, we kind of get down in right into the grit. And it's some difficult topics because John, indeed, in 2 John, was instructing his communities, look, you must deny hospitality the necessity of inhospitality to move the kingdom of heaven forward. That's what we're going to be talking about. And John was instructing this community in 2 John to not welcome certain people because if you welcome certain people and certain teachings and certain events into your home, into your heart, it would actually hinder the kingdom of God. But John, next week, on the positive side of things, and 3 John will say, without question, welcome these people, welcome these events, welcome these teachings into your home because it will indeed 
move the kingdom of God forward. So as we've seen through our study of 1 John, and you guys can go back to the podcast and listen to all of these, I'd really recommend that you do because this ties into our whole overview of the year and ties into where we're going next year. But there are definitive marks of true and false Christians. John lays them out for us in chapters one through five. There are definitive marks of true and false Christian community. And there are true and false teachers claiming to be Christian. They have been around from the first century and they are around today in the 21st century. What John was intent on helping his community understand was he wanted them to be weary of, to be careful of false teachers, false agendas, false ideas, denying them hospitality, not offering them, sending them out into the deserts metaphorically to die. And he wanted us to welcome in the true teachers of Jesus Christ, the true ideas of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting here. He opens his letter, as Tierra read for us in verse 1, 2 John 1. It'll be up on the screens for you if you don't have your Bibles with you. The lady chosen by God. The lady chosen by God and to her children. Now, this isn't 100% consensus. It's not 100% certain, but most of the general scholarly consensus is that when John refers to the lady, it's a metaphorical reference to the church. The church gathered together who nurtures the children of the Father. The biblical record is replete with feminine references to the people of God. Primarily, we are referred to as the bride, the bride of Jesus, the New Testament covenant community. In this instance here in John, though, there's this imagery evoked, warmth and tenderness by a mother. We, the church, referred to as a mother with her children. Now, our Catholic and Orthodox traditions have long said that God is the Father who saves us, while the church is our mother who tends to us and forms us and nourishes us. For example, the late 4th century teacher Ignatius said, just as a mother would not forsake her children, so the church will never forsake those who turn to her for refuge. Francis, the current pope of this day, said, the church is a mother who tenderly holds her children's hands and guides them along the path of goodness. What does that have to do with hospitality for us this morning? When you and I gather here on Sunday morning, the imagery that should be evoked in our hearts and minds, the goal that we should pursue is that of a mother with her children. There should be a warmth and a tenderness about us, a desire to care for the ones who have come near us, a desire to welcome them with milk and cookies, so to speak, as well as, as well as what good mothers are renowned for, sternness and discipline and correction. You see, the church exists as this motherly presence in the midst of each other, warmly, tenderly caring for each other, carefully and intentionally, purposefully disciplining, guiding each other, which is where we're going for the rest of this teaching. And so having greeted his family, the lady, and the children whom she is nourishing, and us here in the 21st century, we, the lady, and the children being nourished here, John goes on and he quickly, in 2 John, reviews the marks of true and false Christianity. I'm just going to point you to the podcast. We just don't have time to go through it. I'll briefly summarize some of the marks that John has laid out in the five chapters of 1 John and that he summarizes here. Number one, in verses one through two, John reiterates that believing Jesus Christ's teaching, Sermon on the Mount, all of his stories, all of his parables, taking those in as truth and believing those as the truth about reality, believing Jesus Christ's teaching as the truth about reality. 
That is what binds his community together. And we are bound together as we align ourselves with his will in this world as he teaches on what reality is. Does that all make sense? That's verses one and two. In verse three, you have this ancient traditional style greeting, grace and mercy and peace to you. You find it in all sorts of letters from antiquity. But it's also a reminder that when we come to Jesus Christ, we come to and we enter into and we receive grace. You come just as you are. You come exactly as you are this morning and you receive mercy. You can't help yourself. You must just surrender to his gentleness, his kindness, his wisdom, his longing, as was brought up in prayer this morning, his longing to be gracious and merciful to you. And peace, the peace that everybody is longing for in this social moment comes through and can only come through the creator of the universe who defines reality for us through his teachings. So peace upon us through this traditional greeting, verse three. Verses four through six, you guys are gonna have to forgive me. I've been losing my voice for the last three days and it's just gonna, I don't know if it's gonna last or not. We'll see what happens. Verses four through six. John in this text rejoices, and he rejoices because his community was obeying Jesus's commands because the defining mark of love for God is not heebie-jeebies feelings. It's not goosebumps. It's not floating on the clouds. I'm so loved by God. It is, I will obey him. What he says, I will do. What he says about reality, I will live into as if it is true for me. Vertical love for God was in John's community being expressed by horizontal love for each other. And so this community, they were through selfless acts of service and kindness and generosity at cost to themselves, serving one another, thus showing their love for God. And John looks at this as a father of the community and says, I rejoice in that. And of course, as we made our way through 1 John, the ultimate act of walking in love was occurring in this family. They were loving like Jesus because they were absorbing the hurt that was being inflicted by each other. They were absorbing like Jesus did the hurt that was inflicted by one another. They were extending forgiveness in the name of reconciliation so that enemies would be family. Now, verses seven through nine. Verses seven through nine form a bridge to John's exhortations about hospitality here this morning. And so in the case of 2 John, again, he's talking about the necessity of being inhospitable and he wants inhospitality to thwart false teachers' agendas. These false teachers, we learn from verses 7 through 9 and other places in 1 John, false teachers are not just charlatans, dear church. False teachers, behind false teachers, behind false ideas about reality, there is a cosmic and spiritual war that we cannot see happening all around us. It is raging all around us against God. And so false teachers, false ideologies, deformities, deformities of reality, these are all inspired by literal malevolent spiritual beings that oppose Jesus and his people and his ways in the world. They are, as John says, anti-Jesus. They are anti-Christ. And so it was these false teachers, motivated and moved, whether conscious or unconsciously, by these malevolent spiritual beings, it was these false ideologies that John said the community was to refuse hospitality to, lest they inadvertently become allied with the anti-Jesus, with the antichrist. I'll read the text for us one more time. 2 John 10 through 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. It's heavy. 
deep breath. Here we go. Let's build this out for modern saddened deacons. What in the world are we supposed to do with these ancient texts, this inhospitality, this hospitality, life and death, matters of good and evil and malevolent spirits? My goodness, what are we supposed to do with all of this? And we have to ask the question, how in the modern age does our exclusion or inclusion of certain people or certain ideas at our own dinner parties, how does it affect Jesus's purpose in our homes and on earth as it is in heaven? Ask ourselves that question as we talk here for a little bit. Does interacting with or participating in or agreeing with or disagreeing with certain political moments, certain social views in this current moment, does that ripple out from our hearts into the cosmos? Here's the big question for the morning. morning. How does who and what we welcome into our homes and our hearts help or hinder the cause of God? That's the big question John is wanting us to ask as modern San Diegans. So take a moment and ask yourself right now, have I ever considered who and what I'm welcoming into my heart and home and how it is affecting my soul, the soul of my people, the soul of my community, the soul of my city, the soul of the place in which I live. That's where we're going. You guys ready to do this? Our understanding of hospitality is absolutely crucial. So as we explore this, it is a complex world. Let's set that up front. We want to to be honest about the teachings of these texts. The, The world of Christian hospitality is extremely complex. When we begin to ask, who should we host? Who should we not host? What should we welcome in? What what should we not welcome in? How do we know the answer to those questions? And a lot of times, it is a very difficult thing to discern. So we need to start by reframing hospitality for us as late Western moderns. That's what we are. Rather than reducing hospitality to sort of a kinfolk magazine cover where everything's aesthetically perfect and all the social interaction is absolutely amazing, we need to think of hospitality in the framework of our whole life. So right now, think of the whole of your life as a gigantic house. You're in school right now, and that's a gigantic piece of your house. That's one room of your house. You're married, and you're sending your kids off to college. That's one gigantic room in your house. You are a father, a mother. You are a single. You are, it's all, all of your life is one gigantic house. Everybody got that? So with that framework in mind, the content that we welcome in, the teaching that we welcome in, and the community, the people that we spend time with, and the ideologies that we consider, and the philosophies that we adopt, and the places that we go, and the events that we attend, all of these things have massive influence in the structure, in the home that we call our life. And all of us, every single day, are constantly welcoming things or turning things away. Does all that make sense? So nod that guy, everybody with me? Okay, good. When we frame hospitality in this way, we begin to realize that everything, and I I don't want to speak, you know, without nuance here, but this is the way it is for us. Every single thing that we welcome or deny into our lives, every single thing that we associate with, consider, it either is going to help the kingdom of God move forward, or it is going to move in a direction of hindering the kingdom of God. Yes, there are quote-unquote insignificant, inconsequential teachings and ideas. There are small things out there in the world, but Everything has some sort of ripple effect in the heart of a human, and it ripples out from your heart into the cosmos, into eternity. Everything also, my friends, has something behind it. Even the most neutral and inconsequential things has behind it this raging cosmic war of anti-Jesus and things that are for Jesus. 
So everything this week, from your classrooms to your tables at home to your Instagram feeds, everything is going to shape either the contour of the kingdom of God in your soul or not. You are either going to this week curate contentment or you're going to curate covetousness, period. This week, you're either going to curate more purity or you're going to allow in and curate hospitality to pollutants. There's just no either or in this, dear friends. So we need to heed John's warning. There are people and places and things that we are just flat out not to welcome into our lives because they oppose God. They are the anti-Jesus. There are people, places, and things that we are certainly supposed to pursue and invite and welcome into our lives because they help the kingdom of God. Now, in a 35, 40-minute sermon, I'm going to paint with the broadest brush, and I hate doing that. I literally hate it, but it's all the time that we have. So we're going to paint with this massive broad brush because this topic of everything in the cosmos affecting us and rippling out into the world is just too huge. What I'd like to do, for simplicity's sake, is break everything down into two primary categories for us to consider this morning. Hospitality or inhospitality to content and community. Content and community. The modern Christian needs to be very careful and discerning about the content and the community that we welcome into the house that is our life. And as with everything in the world of the Bible, as I already said, when we begin to consider welcoming or not welcoming everything in our lives, it gets really complex really fast and it requires a ton of prayer, and there are no easy answers. So we're going to start with content, we'll finish with community, and then I'll give a kind of concrete block to how to do this, and then we're going to take communion. Does that sound good? I know it's hot in here. We're working with the school district every summer to get the air conditioning on, and they just won't do it, so suffer for Jesus. All right. <laughs> Everything that comes into our lives, you must think of it as a teacher. Back in my spiritual direction days, when I was in clinical counseling, my spiritual director slash therapist said to me, Dan, everything that is, is the teacher. And I was like, Rich, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What does that even mean? But now, 20 years later, I'm like, oh yeah, everything is teaching me something. Everything is trying to get a message across. What we read, what we consider entertainment, what we listen to musically, social media, the news that we take in, it is carrying a teaching, a didactic message teachings and ideas with this cosmic warfare going on behind it. And John is exhorting you as Christians to be discerning about the content that we welcome in and the content that we must absolutely not welcome into our lives. So how in the world can we do that? We live in the age of information, constant information, streaming movies, media, music. We are drowning in a tsunami of content. And I just want to assure you, the Lord knows that and has placed us in this generation for that purpose. He knows what we need. So the longer you're a part of neighbors, you're going to hear things like practices of silence and solitude and Sabbath and being still and all this kind of hippie stuff. It's probably the most important stuff that the church can be doing right now. Silence and solitude, the practice of silence and solitude is an intentional time to depart from the content of the world, to escape into the deserts, whether it's with Bedouins and camel spiders, or it's just turning off your phone and sitting in your room for a while. It is a time to intentionally be still and silent, and our souls more than ever need to disconnect and deny hospitality to the constant flow of content so that you can breathe. So that you can breathe. My heart is breaking for this generation. Panic attacks that make you feel like you're having a heart attack at 19? There must be a disconnect from this tsunami that you feel like you're drowning in. And this is why. 
The texts are clear. God whispers and the world screams. But it is your responsibility as the curator, as the one who sets the table for the home and the heart that is your life to create a space intentionally where you welcome God and you shut the door to the cacophony that is this cultural moment. We cannot, and hear this now, here's the nuance. We cannot, and this is where Christianity has made a huge mistake, huge mistake in the history of our, of our people. We cannot, and God does not intend for us to escape completely. Escapism is not Christianity. We're never going to escape the deluge that is the content of this current moment. We're never going to completely silence the content of this moment. Although I will say, five or six days in a monastery or out in the desert, it gets really quiet out there. I just want to invite you to do that. But God does expect us to partner with him in curating the content that we allow into our lives. Everything from media to movies to music. Now, for those of you that are church kids or some of the the more gray hair in here, welcome. Um, I know that there's a history in the church of severe legalism. And you may be sitting there saying right now, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, I've heard this before. Sounds like we may be going back to some fundamentalist, legalist, 1950s sort of no music, no dancing, no movies, no social media. I think my kids think I say that. No social media for you. You know, burn your CDs. That was back in my day in the Paleolithic era. Uh, Get rid of your Spotify account. Is that where we're going as a church? Are we going to that legalistic place? And I would say for some of you, that's exactly what you need. I knew you thought I was going to come in with, no, absolutely not, grace and mercy. No, 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 I, I, I can't do it anymore. I think absolutely there is a need for many, many Christians in this cultural moment to say, for a good, long, ex- extended season, I'm going to deny hospitality to the content that has been curating and, and crushing my soul. Now listen, God has given us tremendous liberty in the content that we consume. Tremendous. He's not holding over your head. He's not looking into your Spotify account saying, ooh, that, you're out of heaven. He's not looking into the movies that we watch and saying, I can't believe it. We have tremendous liberty as children of God to watch, to take in, to read, to listen to what we want as enjoyers of his creation. But he expects us to mature and curate that content. Have you guys ever been around a three-year-old that's into a certain movie? They, it's impossible for them to curate the time in which they take in that content. I have seen Ratatouille probably eight million times. Because when my kids were little, every single second of the day, we were watching Ratatouille. Listen, I don't want this to be demeaning or condemning, but that is American society right now. Unchecked, immature, unaware, inability to stop the stream of information in our lives. That's what what we are. This is a country of toddlers screaming at the top of their lungs because we can't stop taking in the tsunami of information. Now, as we begin to curate this, does that mean that we cut it off completely? This is the nuance. Absolutely not. We never cut off music completely or social media completely. I've had to cut off social media because of my severe addictive patterns in my brain. I can't do it. But music, movie, all those things. Let me give you an example from my own life. So before I was a Christian, I got saved in 1998. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I was, I was what you would consider your quintessential metalhead. Like, I grew up on Metallica. I grew up on Motley Crue. Like, that was my thing. 
And um, because of my lifestyle, I ended up doing some very, very strange things on high, high doses of drugs with that type of music, like deep, dark, heavy metal uh, driving me. And so after I became a Christian, I was actually literally terrified of that music. I would hear that type of music, and it just, it would make my skin crawl. It overwhelmed me completely. And so I completely, back in the day, got rid of all my CDs, all my metal stuff. I quit listening. I quit going to metal shows, all of that stuff. And all I could do was, like, listen to Delirious. Here I am to worship. Like, I listened to that song on repeat, nonstop, because I couldn't sleep at night. So I would just throw on worship and lay there and cry till I went to sleep. And then, fast forward a few years, I marry my wife. For those of you that don't know my wife, Alexis, she's an extremely elegant and sophisticated woman, and she sophisticated the metalhead caveman, for sure. And so she had me start listening to jazz and classical, and I was like, oh, wow, there's this whole space of music out there. It's, it's amazing. And, and over time, I began to reintroduce all, reintroduce all sorts of different genres to where Eventually, you know, as they say, you can take the man out of the metal show, but you can't take the metal out of the man. Today, if you were to go out in my garage gym with me and, and get, a, a, get a good workout in, uh, you know, you begin, with, you begin your warm-up with, you know, Brian and Katie Torwalt. Holy Spirit. You're all stretching. It's nice. It's beautiful. And then I just want to, I'll just, I'll summarize it this way. I, I have a Spotify playlist account. I'm embarrassed to say this out loud. It's called Rip Your Face Off. <laughs> <laughs> And that is usually what will get hit play on when uh, the CrossFit workout starts. So I will be honest, though. There are many days out in the garage where I need to be actually inhospitable to that musical content. I do. Uh, I just need some Dua Lipa. Yes, I just said that out loud. I need something light. I need something not so, I need something not so dangerous, not so intense. And many days, friends, when I go out there, uh, though it's a gnarly workout, I'll just sit there, holy spirit, as I'm doing thrusters, you know? Please, God, come. Because content, now listen, musical teaching hinders or helps the kingdom of God. We have one of the best worship pastors in all of San Diego. It's pretty clear. One of the things that makes Joshua one of the greatest worship pastors in the city is his ability to teach musically. He's able to prophesy with the instrument while teaching lyrically, while teaching as a pastor. We really are tremendously blessed in that because musical content teaches. Now, just another quick one, just like movies. Here was another one that I thought of, and then we'll move on. Lex and I, the other night, we go to Oppenheimer, right? So we're going to watch Oppenheim Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. I'm so sorry. Jeez. So embarrassing. Prior to the movie, prior to the movie, uh, the new Exorcist movie played. Did any of you guys see that trailer? Did any of you guys see that? Just raise your hand if you saw that, please. Okay, good. So some of you are with me. That trailer comes on, and it's absolutely horrifying. It's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Lex is literally, like, turning her eyes away. And I was just sitting there getting mad, like, what parent lets their little girl get into a movie like this? I want to find their names. I want to write them a letter. I want to just, blah. I was so mad. I'm sitting there getting more and more fumed and more and more scared. And the guy next to me, total stranger, leans over, and he's like, uh, hell No. <laughs> And I was like, I was just thinking through, like, does this guy know Jesus? Is that why he's so scared of this movie? Or did he sense somewhere in himself that this movie is going to put forward a message that Americans pay money for to glorify, and it's anti-Jesus? Something in his gut said, I'm not going to allow this. I'm not going to let this, I'm not going to let this be hospitable into my soul. Be careful. Listen, it's a broad topic, and that's why I want to leave you guys to it. I, I think this week during community group, you guys need to sit around and have a pretty lengthy conversation. What is the content that is in my life? 
How much and how is it shaping me? How are movies, media, social media, how is news shaping my life? Guys, we're coming up on a political cycle in 2024. I am begging you this year to be Christian. Be Christian, please. And I, I mean it with a deep humility and a pastoral angst. Read your Bibles. We are people of the kingdom of God. Politics are extremely important. The presidential debates are going to be extremely important. There are massive things that we are able to contribute to in a democratic republic like this. But we are the kingdom of God people, so read your Bibles and seek first the kingdom of God and curate the content that you spew out or bless others with via this hospitality and hospitality thing. This week in community groups, take a long time and discuss. What things should I get rid of for a while? Should I, should I go hit a monastery for four days with no phone and total silence? Does that just terrify you? Should I just try 12 hours without my phone? What would that be like? What would it be like to, to, to spend an hour in silence with no music, nothing? To just begin to discern the subtle whispers of God. Content and community. Give me 10 more minutes here. Community, hospitality, okay? In hospitality to certain content and in hospitality to certain community. Who are we letting into our lives? So as the saying goes, birds of a feather flock together. Are we careful and intentional with the company that we keep because we become the company that we spend the most time with, okay? Our society, just, to, just so you know, our society, secular society, non-church society, has a version of this exclusion and inclusion of certain community members. The difference between community and society and idealistic community in the church is that society excludes or includes into their community based on different teachings, and it is not measured by grace and mercy. Take, for example, cancel culture. Cancel culture is an extreme version of a community saying, your ideas, your agenda, your behavior is not welcome here. I would say in some scenarios, extremely beneficial. Let's take the sexual predators that have been called out and shamed out of the world. That's a good thing. But cancel culture also has this restrictive and merciless ability to create such a terrible echo chamber. All across America, hope you kids at SDSU and the colleges represented here will fight this, college students have been raging against and running out particular speakers. You are not welcome here. We don't want free ideas. This community believes this idea, and we don't want to hear your ideas. Do you guys see this? Do you guys see that the exclusionary and inclusionary nature of humanity, it just filters through all of us no matter what. Why I'm saying this is because people will be like, oh, the church is so hobby snobby, exclusionary. Well, so is society. Everybody is excluding everybody. And I will say that in this tribal splintering moment of our society, the lines that are being drawn in the sand, if you cross over them, it's detrimental. It is terribly dangerous to say the wrong thing in the wrong crowd. Cancel culture is, secular version, is the secular version of crucifixion. Sometimes people are innocent in that, and sometimes, honestly, they deserve to be crucified. I'll let you guys talk about that at community group as well. So the political, racial, and social lines that are drawn by our society have to be erased in the church. They have to be erased in the church, and we have to include based on teachings, and we have to exclude based on specific teachings. It's because we humans, we do this. We exclude and we include because we understand inherently that we become like who we are with. We know this neuroscientifically. We know this from brain studies, that we become like who we are with. We mirror their behaviors, their patterns from infancy all the way to old age. Much more on that next week. 
And here's an important note for us as a Christian community, and especially for those of you that were maybe dragged here or invited here by a friend, and you're exploring spirituality, you're exploring Christianity, and you're kind of getting uncomfortable, like, whoa, man, exclusionary community? What is this guy talking about? In this text, in 2 John, John is barring hospitality to a very specific type of person. And I want to detail who that is with a very clear definition. It'll be up on the screens for you. The person who claims to be Christian, I am a Christian, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, but does not obey Jesus, his teachings, or distorts Jesus' teachings, eventually, I wish I could have underlined that, eventually must not be welcome in our lives. This is who John is defining. This is who John is saying, deny hospitality to the one who says, I love Jesus, but I'm going to do exactly what I want. Oh, does Jesus really say this about this? Well, I don't know if that's actually for me. Or I mean, I think I could actually get it to say this. He can't be actually meaning what you say he's meaning. You see this? It's an interpretive mess. It's a long, complex process to discern. But the person ultimately who claims to be Christian but does not obey Jesus or distorts Jesus' teachings, Aaron, thank you, eventually bolded, underlined, eventually must not be welcome in our lives. Hopefully, you guys recognize this. If you are a Christian in this room, you're a follower of Jesus, you should have tons of friends. If you're here as an unbeliever, you are, you're figuring this whole thing out. So are we. And you are so, so in the name of Jesus. Welcome here to learn and grow right alongside this fool's parade that we're all walking in. We get it. I get it. You know, if you're a Christian, you, you should have every kind of friend of stripe and color and sexuality and political tribe. We of Christians, we as Christians of all people, we should have around our table the, the Democrat, the gay guy, the MAGA hat wearing guy, a black guy, a Mexican guy, and a white guy just, just right around, and girls too, by the way, and girls too. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so done. I'm getting canceled right now. Ouch. Okay. John isn't saying cut off people that don't believe like you. That's in my notes right there. John is not saying do not cut. John is saying do not cut off people that don't believe like you. Fill your tables with people that don't believe like you. Fill your tables with people that don't believe like you. But he is saying that we need to be careful of welcoming people who do claim to believe like we do, but do not behave or actually teach what we believe about Jesus. That's a defining deep line in the sand for Christianity. Now, let me just read our topic verse for one more time. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. You ally yourself. You ally yourself with the anti-Jesus in this cosmic war when we welcome into our homes one who says, I believe in Jesus, but I do not want to behave or actually teach what Jesus says. Now, <clears throat> Do not bring this teaching, or does not bring this teaching. That includes behaviors and beliefs and all that stuff that have been confessed and defended by the church for the last 2,000 years. For those of you that are interested in what like the baseline of that is for Neighbors Church, we're doing our basics in October. You can come and we'll lay out. These are the non-negotiables. This is what the church has taught for 2,000 years. If you're going to be on Team Neighbors, it's Team Jesus according to this sort of interpretation, okay? And you can, we'll walk you guys through that with tons of Q&A, tons, very sensitive topics, but the line eventually must be drawn for the person. Now, here we go. 
a line is drawn for a person welcomed into our homes and hearts who repeatedly, without repentance, exhibits a pattern of anti-Jesus behavior and belief, but claims to be a disciple of Jesus. Very complex. Let me ask you guys a couple questions. How do we know when someone is just belligerently living in sin versus is just immature and needs to grow a little bit? That's a difficult, terrifying question that I have faced now for 25 years as a pastor, over and over and over. Does this person just need to grow up in Jesus and learn what repentance is? Or are they like, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's a difficult question. What about this one? How can we discern when someone has adopted a false teaching or they're just actually doing the necessary, I would say necessary, and extremely important work of exploring, especially for, for all you 20 to 30-year-olds in here, explore different ideas and belief systems so that you can actually get to the bedrock of the living, breathing, resurrected Jesus. We want to welcome people around our table who are like, well, what about this, 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 and are open to having a discussion with really seeking for answers when answers can be supplied. What we are not open to is somebody who is belligerently and deceptively saying, I've adopted this false teaching about Jesus. So how do we know? This is where we're going to close. Uh, Alliterated, I don't know why. Just maybe try to remember this. How do you know? Prayer, patience, persistence, and pressure. Very briefly. If you right now have welcomed into your home someone who says, I'm a believer, and maybe this is just going to strike home for you right now. It struck home for me in many ways. You begin praying, am I living the way that Jesus wants me to live? Or you begin praying for this person. Father, I pray. They they claim to know Jesus, and yet their life, they want to live this way, but Jesus very clearly lays out these sexual standards, these generosity standards, these uh, obedience standards throughout the Sermon on the Mount, throughout the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament. We begin to pray. It always starts with prayer. And if you haven't prayed, don't ever talk to somebody. (laughs) Just just prayer, 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 relentless prayer. We begin to discern through patience. Friends, it takes a long time for somebody like me, and I'll just assure you of this, it takes a long, long time for me to come to a place where I'm like, I think I need to exclude this person from my life. And as a pastor in the New Testament, we have instructions from St. Paul that there are points in time where we have to actually exclude somebody from the community of Jesus because of their refusal to repent. I've done one excommunication in 25 years of, 25, well, two. Two excommunications in 25 years of lead pastoring, 20 years of lead pastoring. Two. And most of those took almost two years to get to that place. Of what? Persistence. Sitting down with this person over about a zillion cups of coffee saying, Let's go over this text together. What do you think about this text? Why are you resisting this text? Do you believe this text? What does this text mean for you? What does this teaching mean for you? Persistence over and over, month after month, year after year, walking in prayerful, patient persistence with somebody saying, please, this is my interpretation of this. I understand it, but this is, the, this is in concert with the entire community of the church throughout history, 2,000 years. Let's talk about this a little bit further. Being persistent over and over. And by the way, I'm placing this mantle of responsibility on you, the church, Not bringing them to Pastor Dan to get coffee. You, the church, persistently being Christians, making disciples, okay? And then finally, it's just, it's full-on pressure. And this is where it hurts. This is where it really hurts. You know, I've been meeting with you for two years, and I've been talking with you about your sexual behavior as you're a follower of Jesus, and it just seems to me that this is not something that you actually want to obey him in, and 
When, when you want to walk in purity, I'm going to be here to have lunch with you. I'm going to be here to be your best. I'm going to love you forever. But I, I'm not going to spend time with you until this changes. To which most of this generation goes, how is that loving? When we recognize that Jesus Christ had to be completely cut off because of sin, we begin to realize the devastation that sin brings. And this is nuanced. I just want to go through those first three again, friends. That decision to say to a person that you love, you know what, I think we're going to have to part ways until you come around to Jesus, to actually following Jesus, that is, that is excruciating. Prayer, patience, persistence, and pressure. As we come to communion this morning, I think what I want to invite each of us to do is sit at the foot of the cross and remember that Jesus Christ was completely cut off from the love, from the community of his Father and the Spirit. He was cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he deserved to be cut off, but because our sin has separated us from our Father. So he had to absorb that into himself. For you as Christians, as we come to the cross this morning, I really want you to deeply assess. Let the Spirit move in your heart. What is forming the way you think about the world most? And just be brutally honest about that. Is scripture and the Christian community and prayer the foundation of what's forming the way you view the world in reality? Or is some other teacher, some other content, some other community the primary source of your formation? If you're new here, and again, you're exploring Christianity and, and exploring spirituality, welcome. Welcome. Just keep taking notes. We can have philosophical discussions about what the nature of reality is. We can do all that fun stuff. Just keep learning. For the Christians in the room, what have you been curating? What have you been allowing in? What community is around your table? Not around. What is the house of your heart allowed in, and how has it shaped you? And then today, during, during communion, just take time and say, Jesus, you have absorbed any mistakes that I've ever made. You've absorbed it. You love me. There's nothing but grace and mercy and peace for me and my friends and my family. There's nothing but grace and mercy and peace for this person that I'm praying for right now who, who I know says they want to love you but doesn't. Lord, please give me wisdom to be that disciple maker, that apprentice maker who's, who's going to help shepherd this soul that you've sent me to. Father, as we come to worship and come to communion, uh, just settle the souls of your people and may they know that you are loved. May they take responsibility for their own souls and may they curate, may they be careful about what they welcome in, what they don't welcome in. As we journey, Lord, and finish this year of becoming a community of love, I, play that, I pray that we would be so inclusionary, ridiculously inclusionary, that white, black, Mexican, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, the whole gamut, educated, uneducated, poor, rich, the whole gamut of humanity would be welcome in here to hear the teachings of Jesus Christ and to decide, I want to align myself with this vision of reality. Give us deep wisdom, Lord, as we become a community of love in our own souls and as we care for one another. May love abound for one another and may there just be a settledness and a certainty in this church this fall as we truly begin to pray Bind us together as a family until you return. In Jesus' name, let's all stand for a moment and sing to Jesus.